0: So, there's the question on the screen that I wanted to begin with, who are we and what are we here for? I know I'd say, well, we're Christians and we're here because it's Sunday and it's uh, time to go to church, but of course, I mean it a bit more profoundly than that, and really what I'm asking is, what is the church and what is the purpose of our existence? What are we here on earth for? And if you were to ask that question at at a personal level, you know, who are you and what are you here on earth for? the answer would depend quite a bit on what story you think you're living in. And by that, I don't just mean the story of our own life, because we've all got a life story, which we can tell our friends when, you know, if we're introducing ourselves. But I mean that sense of a larger story or narrative in the outside world that people think we're all part of. Uh, all cultures have a cultural story, some sense of where things are going, and why it's worth living and going on contributing to society. And in the West, here in Britain and Ireland and Europe and so on, for about the last 300 years, that has been basically the story of human progress. We we got this idea that somehow we don't really need God in charge of everything. We can manage pretty well, thank you. We will make the world better by better education or better technology or better science we as human beings have this great capacity to change things for the better, and in many ways, of course, we do. Uh, So that's become the story, the kind of cultural story, that everything will get better and better, so long as we all do our bit, play our part, uh, we hope, somehow or other, eventually. For the kind of functional atheism that that produces, you know, you move God out the window and we'll just do it ourselves. That is becoming a really rather thin story of late, isn't it? Uh, Especially for those who are convinced as atheists that the universe came from nowhere and is going nowhere, just from the big bang to the big crunch. Uh, There's no real purpose to life. I don't know whether you remember a few years ago in London, where where I now live, where my wife and I live, There is these big famous iconic red London buses. And uh, some years ago, Richard Dawkins and the Humanist Society paid for an advert on the London buses. So for several months, uh, all the fleet of London buses went around with this message on the side, there probably is no God, stop worrying, and enjoy life. And uh, that was the message on the buses. You may have also seen there was a very clever cartoon that appeared in the church press of a church with a bus stop outside the church, and a church notice board which said, there probably is no bus. Uh, So, step inside and enjoy God, which I thought was a rather clever turnaround. But I remember when I saw that on the London buses, first of all, I thought, well, that's a bit odd because it suggests it's all the Christians who believe in God who are worrying all the time, you know, stop worrying and enjoy life, when actually the statistics all show that people of faith in general are less stressed uh, than the general population. But the other thing that I thought when I saw it, it there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy life. Well. You know, there's no story in that. There's nothing that is sort of worth living for or even worth dying for. It's just sort of eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. What's the point of that? I mean, here's a story. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a story because it's got a beginning, it's got a purpose, it's got a problem, it's got a solution, and it's got a glorious ending, not perishing with eternal life. The Bible has a story. Now, we could ask the same question as I just asked about the Israelites of this passage we were looking at in Exodus 19. We could ask, who were they and what are they there for? What are the Israelites in the Bible for? You may have wondered that sometimes when you're trying to get a grip on the Old Testament. And the answer is, of course, that that little story we've just read that they were there because of God's big story, the real story of this world, the true story of this world, which is the story that the Bible tells. The whole Bible story is the story of the past, the present, and the future. It includes the whole universe in its span. It is the true story. That is the real story that we should be living in as Christian believers, not just in the rather thin story of human progress that the world wants to tell. Now, you can put that whole Bible story on the back of an envelope. Here it is. I've drawn this simply as a bunch of symbols, and I want to just very quickly show you that the Bible begins with Act 1, the creation, God creates the heavens and the earth and puts human beings in there, God and the earth and the human race. In the beginning, God created. But then you get the big problem that comes with Act 2, when we choose as a human race to disbelieve God and distrust his goodness and disobey him, and we bring all the mess of evil and fall and sin and rebellion into the world. But God doesn't end the story there because Act 3 is when God makes this great promise to Abraham that through him and his people, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So the Old Testament, which is the long Act 3 with the arrow pointing forward there, is basically this sense of driving forward, that God is on the move to bring about his purposes for all the nations through Israel. And that leads then, of course, to the central act, act four, which is the gospel story of the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes in fulfillment of God's promise and accomplishes God's salvation in his life and his atoning death and resurrection and ascension. Uh, back to heaven. And then, of course, the story doesn't end with the resurrection because the book of Acts comes, the Holy Spirit is sent to the church, and we have the Act 5, the great expansion of the church through the New Testament, and then to the ends of the earth in the mission of the church, until eventually you reach the the other end of the story, which were presented in the book of Revelation, the final judgment in which God returns to deal with wickedness and sin uh, and all evildoers, the final rectification when God puts all things right and then the new creation, when Christ returns to bring God's presence uh, to the new heaven and the new earth. There's the whole Bible. Um, and I said on the back of an envelope because that's where it was I first saw it done by a friend in the, in the, in the States who said that he was asked one time by somebody in his church, who he, he was talking about the Bible being one story, and someone said, what do you mean the Bible's one story? There's hundreds of stories in the Bible. And he said, let me show you the whole story of the Bible, flicked over an envelope and drew these symbols and said, there it is, that's the whole Bible. I've done it in a restaurant with a friend on the back of a napkin, you know, just just drawn it out to show this is what the whole Bible story is about. And of course, when we get to our passage that we're looking at here now today, this is there right near the beginning of that story, near the beginning of, of, of Act 3. So here we are, what's happened up to this point, what's going on? And there we have it, just very quickly reading it again. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you in eagle's wings, brought you to myself. Now then, if you will obey me fully and keep my commandments, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession, for the whole earth is mine, and you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what God says to the Israelites after he's got them out of Egypt, got them to himself at Mount Sinai, And this is what he says. And in these words, what I'd like us to see is how God points backwards, first of all, to the past, and then points forward, in a sense, to the future and what his plans are, and then calls for a response in the present from his people. And all of those, the past and the future and the present, are all wrapped up in the grace of God, in what God has done for his people. So let's look at the first of them then, what I call past grace, the grace of God's salvation. God says to the people of Israel, you have seen what I have done. So these first words to his people. He says, look, you've seen what I just did to Egypt and how I brought you here to myself. And of course, they had, because as our text said, it was only three months earlier that these people were slaves in in Egypt, being beaten and whipped and their children being murdered and undergoing that awful situation uh, of being an ethnic minority people in a big host nation being exploited and oppressed and driven virtually to despair. And God says, that's where you were three months ago, but I brought you out of there. And God brought in this gracious act of salvation, liberation, deliverance, brought them out of Egypt to himself. So you see, whatever is going to happen next in this story, which we know because we've read the book, but they hadn't, of course, at this point. But whatever's going to happen next, which will be the Ten Commandments and the giving of the law and the covenant at Mount Sinai, it's all based upon what God had already done, his grace, his salvation. Grace comes first in this story, as it always does when we're dealing with God. And I'm saying this, or I wanted to emphasize this, because Unfortunately, there's still uh, a sort of idea around in some Christian circles, which is quite popular but really quite wrong. It goes something like this, that the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that under the Old Testament covenant, you got saved by keeping God's law, whereas in the New Testament, thank God, we don't have to keep all that law stuff. We get saved by grace. Well, of course, the second is absolutely true But the first is a distortion of the Old Testament. They were not saved by keeping the law. They were saved first and then asked to keep God's law. So the whole point here, you see, is that God is saying to this people, look, here's what I have done, and now here is how I want you to respond. So obedience to God is always a matter of responding to what God has done first. And that, of course, is also something that comes through in the New Testament as well. Because there are commandments in the New Testament, aren't there? Not just good wishes and promises. You know, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. It's not an option. It's a commandment. But he says, love one another as I have loved you. And remember, John says that we love because he first loved us. His love, his grace comes first. Paul says to us, doesn't he, forgive one another. And there's this wonderful sense that that again is not just an option. He's not just please be nice to one another. He's forgive one another. It's a command. As God in Christ has forgiven you, it's because we know the grace of God that we show it to others. So, all of our lives then, all that we are called to do is based on the grace of God. Let's remember that regularly. Let's remind ourselves, just as God reminded these Israelites, that it was his past grace of salvation which was to motivate every aspect of their lives in the future. And you see, that also affects, if we're thinking this morning a little bit about mission, uh, you can't participate in the mission of God unless you first experience the grace of the God of mission, the God who wants to bring salvation to the world, brought salvation to us, and now says, this is what I've done for you. Now let's see what you will do for me. It's almost as if, if you were to take this text from Exodus 19, Verse 4 and to transpose it into a New Testament context, it's as if Jesus, God rather, would appoint point to the cross of Christ and to say, Look, you have seen what I have done. This is what I did for you. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, God Himself bearing our sins. God says, Now you have seen what I have done. So how are you going to respond to me in your life? So that's the first thing then, the past grace of God's salvation. And that leads us on then to the future grace of God's mission. And you might be saying, I don't quite see mission in this text where, you know, there's no go to all the nations or anything like that. Well, let's just think about it for a minute. There's Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they may well have been thinking, apart from their complaint of their sore feet and everything, having trudged out of uh, Egypt, that they may have been thinking, you know, we're the only people here in this wilderness, so we must be God's very special people that he has chosen to bring us out of Egypt. And at one level, of course, they'd have been right. God says that to them, you are my treasured possession. But if they were thinking that somehow they were the only people on earth that God was concerned about, God says, no, no, no. God says, as it were, almost thinking spatially, from up here, as it were, on the top of Mount Sinai, I can see the whole earth, And it's all mine, and I can see all the nations, and they are the ones that I'm concerned about. And so those phrases that come there in verse 5, all nations in the whole earth, are very significant at this point. Because what we have in this little passage is this marvelous combination of something that's very particular and local, alongside something which is absolutely universal, all nations and the whole earth. So here's God, you see, saying that he had just rescued one nation out of slavery. But God had just done that because this is the God who wants to bring rescue and salvation to all the nations on the planet. He's doing it for this one, for the sake of them all. Here's the God who says to Israel, yes, you are my treasured possession, but the whole earth is mine. He's the God who owns everything. Here's the God who had shown his power in one country, the country of Egypt. But even while he was doing that, he says to Pharaoh, do you remember? He says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up, and nobody will know which Pharaoh you are because we still don't know exactly which the name of that Pharaoh. Pharaoh just means king. Which was his name? God says, I've raised you up, Mr. Pharaoh, so that my name will be known to the ends of the earth, the name of the Lord God of Israel, the universal desire of God to be known everywhere. So here is this very particular God and Israel for the sake of all the nations. And we ought to be saying at this point, if we have been reading the Bible from the beginning, well, of course it is, because who is this God who is speaking here? This is the same God who at this same place just some months earlier when he met with Moses at the burning bush at Mount Sinai, and Moses had asked God, well, if I go to Egypt. Who am I to say you are? Who are you, God? And what had God said? He said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the God who had made that promise hundreds of years earlier to Abraham, that through you, all nations on the whole earth will be blessed. It's the same God, the God of all nations, the God of the whole earth who's brought Israel out of Egypt to this place for that purpose. Do you see why I'm calling this the big story? This is God in action, but God with his wide-angle vision of all the nations. That's the whole point, you see, that in the Old Testament, God's business with Israel is really simply God's unfinished business for all the nations on the earth. One way that I sometimes try to picture this uh, is a little story from my own uh, background as a dad. Uh, I've got four kids that are all grown up and married now, but our two sons— when they were young lads of course played football as they all do um, and i used to go along to their matches when they were playing for their school or whatever and i would take my camera along do you remember cameras those things we actually used to have with lenses and uh, viewfinders things you look through Well, i had a, a nice old camera with a telephoto lens of about uh, 200 and so with one eye I could look through the lens and focus on my son wherever he was on the pitch and with the other eye I sort of kept that open so that I could see where the other players were where the ball was and how the match was going and so on. It's a kind of double vision because with one eye you see I'm focusing on my son he's my firstborn son Tim I'm here because he's on the pitch and he's playing and you know, I want to take good photos of him but he my son is only there in the frame because there's a match going on with all the other players happening. And you see, it's a bit like that with our Old Testament, because most of the time, Israel fills the frame. They're there, God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. But the firstborn son suggests that there's lots more sons that are going to come. And God's vision is for the whole nation. Israel is only there in the Old Testament because of God's agenda for the nations, which in our language means God's mission of world evangelization. Even at Mount Sinai, God was looking forward, as it were, to this great reality uh, of the whole universal future, which is why this language of tribes, of nations, of all the nations of the whole earth, echoes through the scriptures in the Psalms, such as Christoph read at the very beginning, Psalm 96, and takes you right through to the book of Revelation. Well, we see that there will be people of every tribe and nation and language gathered before the throne of God, and God having kept his promise to Abraham through his people. So that's the the future grace of God's mission, and there is a sense in which that also means, you see, that uh, all our lives are lived within that frame. Who are we? What are we here for? We are the people whom God has redeemed out of slavery, out of sin, out of the bondage of darkness just like Old Testament Israel were brought out of Egypt. But we are also the people through whom God wants to bring blessing to the nations, including our own nation and all the nations to the ends of the earth. And so our our lives, the significance of living now, is in a sense generated by the big story of what God has been doing all through history, including the Exodus and including the cross and resurrection of Christ in the New Testament and right up to the book of Revelation in the end. And somewhere in between those two great things is your life and my life. And that's what gives significance to a human life when it's lived for God. So that's the past mission, the past grace of God's salvation, and the future grace of God's mission. And that brings us, therefore, finally, to the present grace of God's people living in God's world for God. So, verse six is where God says to the Israelites, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And possibly we gulp and say, what on earth do those words mean? Uh, because we're not too sure about priests these days. are ah, We were Protestants. Uh, and, uh, you know, being holy, well, it's somehow it's the idea of stained glass windows and funny smells and things. And we, we're not too sure about these words, priestliness and holiness. So I just want to help us get to grips with them and help us to realize that actually they are part of our mission. Very significantly. In order to understand what God would have meant or how the Israelites would have meant this saying, you are to be, for me, a priestly people, we need to understand what was the job of the priests in the Old Testament. And basically, in Old Testament Israel, the priests were middlemen. We call them mediators, but that's what it means. The the priests stood in between God on the one hand and all the rest of the people on the other. Uh, That was their role. Uh, And it was a role of being in the middle between God and the people, which operated in two directions, both directions. On the one hand, and we may not think of this so often, it was the job of the priests to teach God's law to the people. In fact, that's the first thing that is said to Aaron and his sons when they were ordained into the priesthood in Leviticus chapter 10, God says to them, you must teach the Israelites All the decrees that the Lord has given them. They were to bring God's law so that God's word, the knowledge of God, would come to the people of Israel through the priests. That's also said about the tribe of Levi in Deuteronomy 33. He teaches your law to Israel. And later on, you may remember that when the people of Israel went so far astray from God in such sin and wickedness, who did the prophets blame? Apart from the people themselves and the kings, they blamed the priests. Hosea says, there's no knowledge of God in the land, there's just wickedness and sin and adultery and idolatry, and my charge is against you, O priest, because they should have been teaching God's law, and they weren't. So that's the first thing, through the priest, God would come to the people. But the other way, of course, that we know perhaps rather better, is that it was the job of the priest to bring the sacrifices of the people to God. So if you were an Israelite in the Old Testament, and for some reason or other you were ritually unclean, which might have been because of some sin or just some um, accident or whatever might have happened, and you therefore were not able to come into the presence of God to worship uh, in the tabernacle or in the temple, what could you do? Well, you would bring the sacrifice, whatever it was that was prescribed, and the priest would take the blood of the sacrifice against the altar, and the priest would say to you, your sins are atoned for. That language of atonement there in the book of, of Leviticus was the words of the priests, And so you see, through the priest work then, you could come back into the presence of God uh, to worship and love and praise him. So can you see that the job of the priests in Israel then was to bring God to the people and bring the people to God? A wonderful kind of two-way function that they were supposed to have. So God says to the Israelites, you, you as a whole community, you as a nation, you are going to be the people through whom I will bring myself to the world and bring the world to myself. You will be, for me, to all the rest of the nations, what your priests are to you. You will be the people through whom I, the living God, will become known to the world, which has happened, hasn't it, through the scriptures of Israel. We have a Bible here, and it's in thousands of languages around the world. The God of Israel has made himself known in his revelation. He is given himself to the world through the scriptures of Israel. And you will be the people, he says, through whom I will draw the world to myself, which, of course, he has done ultimately and fully through the Messiah of Israel, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And so, yes, we know that in that sense, God has made this function of Israel to be a priesthood among the nations through the scriptures and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's my point. The people of God, including us, still have this medial role of representing God to the world in order to bring the world to God. That's our mission. Because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said, his mission was. Do you remember in Romans chapter 16? Uh, sorry, Romans chapter 15, verse 16, Paul uses a very interesting word to describe his own ministry. He says, God gave me grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus, that's the Messiah Jesus, to the Gentiles, that means the nations, and he gave me the priestly duty, there's that word, Paul says, I had a priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God through the Holy Spirit. Paul could not have been a priest in Jerusalem, he was the wrong tribe, but he says my job was a priestly one in the world, it was my evangelism and church planting. He was bringing God to the nations and bringing the nations to God. And you might say, good for him. He was an apostle. He was Paul. He was a missionary, etc. Uh, I'm just an ordinary Christian. Well, we don't get off quite so easily because Peter uses exactly the same language and these same verses for all believers, including you and me. He says, you, plural, you are that people, that chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. He's just quoting from Exodus 19. And he says, you've had your exodus experience. God called you out of darkness into wonderful light. And so therefore, he says, you are to declare the praises of God and live such lives among the nations the NIV translates it the pagans, but it means among the nations, live such lives that they will ultimately come to glorify God. You live among them so that they will come to know God. That's the point of this passage. So you see, if somebody sees on the side of a London bus there probably is no God, you know, they ought to be saying to themselves, well, you know, okay, but that really, that can't be quite true because I know John and Sarah and they're Christians and God is obviously real in their lives. You see, we are meant to be the representatives of God. We are meant to be the living proof that there is a living God. That's what God called Israel to be, his priesthood among the nations, showing the living God to the world and bringing the world to God. That is our mission. That is our task. And that is why a passage like this echoes through the Scriptures in a number of places where God reminds Israel that this is what you're supposed to be. And then it's used, as they say, in the New Testament. But the question, of course, then is, as we close, higher. And the answer is that we can only be a priestly people if we are a holy people. So God says to the Israelites, well, if you're going to be that among the nations, you've got to be different from the nations. Because that's what holiness means fundamentally. It means being distinctive or different. So, in passages like Leviticus 18, God says to the Israelites, look, you must not do as they do in Egypt, where I brought you out of, where they worship the gods of empire and power and military might. Don't be like that and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you, where they worship the God of Baal, who is the God of fertility and sex and business and wealth and all that stuff in the land of Canaan. God says, you don't need to go after him either. You must follow my laws, my ways. You must be holy, he says, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. You've got to be a different kind of people because I'm a different God, not like one of your gods of the nations. So that's the command that comes to us also, to be different, to be distinctive, to live as salt and light in the world. And how will we do that? Well, says God, if you will obey me, then you can be my priesthood in the midst of the nations. In other words, uh, obedience is not, not, not a condition of our salvation, but it is a condition of our mission. Do you get what I'm saying there? God didn't say to the Israelites or to say to Moses at Mount Sinai the first time he was there, here's my Ten Commandments, take these down to Egypt, tell the people in Egypt, sorry about your slavery, but you all get to heaven when you die, that's okay. But if you will obey these laws, then I might save you and bring you uh, and be my people. No, he didn't do that. He says, I will rescue these people, I save them, I bring them out, and now I want them to obey me. Obedience, that response to grace and salvation. So we need to remember here this double context of grace that I've already shared with you. This is the grace of our obedient response to God, responding to the grace of God's salvation for the sake of the grace of God's mission. And that's the way it always needs to be. So let me finish then with those three questions that I asked. Who are we? Well, we are the people who have experienced the saving grace of God. I trust so. I trust that you know the Lord Jesus for yourself and that God's grace has found its way into your life. We, like Israel of the Old Testament, are the people who know what it is to point back to God's saving work at the cross and say, God says, you have seen what I have done. And secondly, like Israel, we are people just like Old Testament Israel whom God wants to use for the mission of his future grace to bring blessing to all nations. That's why just being church is missional. We exist for the sake of God's mission to the ends of the earth. And thirdly, therefore, like Old Testament Israel, we are people who are called to live in response to that grace, to live lives that represent the holiness and the beauty and the compassion and the love and the justice of the one true living God and show the world what he is like and then draw them to come to glorify and worship him. Or as Peter puts it, you are that people. So live by that story, live out that identity, and God will do the rest of bringing people to worship him. Let's pray that it may be so. Let me pray as we finish. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that it still speaks across the centuries to us, reminding us who we are and what we're here for, and we ask that you will, through your Holy Spirit, enable us to go out into the world out there, through the doors of the church, aware of who we are and why we're here for the sake of... Of the nations around us, and your desire to draw them to yourself. For we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.